Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. It is Tuesday, the 22nd of October, 2019. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your um, not just listening, but engaging with us. So if you have something to communicate during the show, you can always text me at 877-933-2484. You can also always email me Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. We post the podcast of the show. Well, we don't. Paul does. At MyFaithRadio.com on the Mornings with Carmen page. Great way to share what you are hearing uh, with others. And so we would invite you to do that as well. You can help us uh, build our digital, expand our digital footprint. I don't really know exactly what that means, but if you share the show with somebody else, uh, by you know going and grabbing a link to the podcast and sending it in an email or a text message to somebody else, then they are exposed to what we are doing, um, whether or not they actually live in one of our live listening areas. So uh, you can help us reach people actually all over the world. All right, so just uh, north of the border, Canada uh, re-elected Justin Trudeau as prime minister, but he did lose the majority, which apparently means that his party is going to have to form a coalition government with the opposition, something that um, is uh, just as difficult to do in a parliamentary system as it is here in what we call divided government in the United States. And so let's be praying for our neighbors to the north. They have deep regional differences in much the same way that we have what we think of as like red and blue states. They have really vast regional differences in in Canada, in terms of worldview and the way people engage in uh, in the values, particularly as the government um, sees itself as integral to every part of life, and so uh, let's be let's be praying for folks no- north of our border. And then across the pond, um, Kristen and Keith Getty reached out yesterday to just simply ask that as friends of Getty Music, we would be praying with them for their homeland. They are from Northern Ireland. They are deeply, deeply grieved by the news that you just heard at the top of the hour, um, which is that in Northern Ireland, it is now uh, legal to abort a child up to 28 weeks. And so uh, they are deeply, deeply grieved, and we are praying with them in their grief over this development in Northern Ireland. Uh, One little news item out of Paris. Now, I will tell you, I will not be traveling to Paris to see the uh, Leonardo da Vinci exhibit set to open Thursday at the Louvre. But maybe you are one of the 220,000 people who have already bought tickets to this probably once-in-a-lifetime event. It's the 500th anniversary of da Vinci's uh, death, and there were photos released yesterday. They're just really stunning. Some 160 of da Vinci's works that are ordinarily held in private collections around the world are, have been gathered together at the Louvre. It runs through February. And so anyway, if, you, uh, if you're if you going, you've already got your ticket and you're going, I actually want to hear from you. So if you're one of the people that's going to see the uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci exhibit in the Louvre 
in Paris over the next couple of months, uh, please email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com, because I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. Art is sticky. Art is sticky. Uh, Let's be mindful of that. There are all kinds of ways in which we are influencing one another. Art is certainly one of them. All right, we got uh, got next up, we're going to be talking with Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Why? Well, today actually marks one month, the fourth Tuesday, of what we are calling the impeachment inquiry. And he is going to bring us not only a view of what is happening there, but also um, his experience in Ohio of the Democratic debate last week. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me again today, Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Welcome back, sir. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So last week, you um, you watched the Democratic debate. Is it last week? It might even have been two weeks ago now. I kind of lose track of time. Um, <laughs> it's last week. Okay, it is last week. The, move, the, the news has moved quickly since then. Um, but you actually like experienced it in, in, ter- in a way that maybe many people did not. So, uh, and you also engage it with a mind that is more engaged on these matters than, than most of us. So I would just love for you to reflect on your experience and your observations of that event. Well, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, I was I was able to go to Otterbein University where the debate was held. Uh, I was able to observe it firsthand, and uh, I have I do a lot of media relations here in the Dayton Columbus area, and so I was able to go because of those connections. And it was it was very interesting uh, to be up close and and sort of uh, an eyewitness to history in some ways. Uh, it was similar to I went to the Republican National Convention back in 2016 when it was hosted in Cleveland. Uh, it was similar to that in a lot of ways. You know, you're just sort of observing. And for someone like me who's a political junkie, uh, it's basically like Christmas morning, I guess, times 10, uh, just to kind of watch it all unfold. But, uh, yeah, it, it's history in the making. And it's it's uh, it's sobering uh, to think that the people on that stage, uh, one of whom could very well end up being president of the United States uh, very shortly. But it was it was a great deal of fun. So you're going to have to coin a word because Adam Carrington at Hillsdale College celebrates Scotusmas, which is his his personal <laughs> celebration of when the Supreme Court starts handing out what he understands to be, you know, like the gifts. So um, the political junkie class actually does engage in this in a way that might be different than the general population. However, we are all not only fascinated by it, there is um, there's a pageantry to it. There's a there's there's an odd beauty to the whole thing. Um, one one question that I have had from a listener, and because you were in the room, I'll just ask you: Did you even notice that there was apparently the image of a pentagram uh, above the stage on some big screen? No, I didn't. I didn't yeah. notice anything like that. No, not at all. So you see, I think that's helpful to know because what what gets sort of made a lot of sometimes by. Uh, by people who always want to be picking the pepper, um, sometimes they make they make a great deal out of things that really, if you were there experiencing it, were were not meaningful at all. So let's talk about some of the substance of uh, of yeah. what you heard. Um, 
maybe where did you where did you sense that they're kind of all the same and where did you sense that there are some real differences you know, I mean, when it comes to issues, uh, certainly social issues, the candidates are certainly all on one page for the most part. I mean, there are very little variation when it comes to things like supporting same-sex rights and same-sex marriage rights or the transgender um, agenda. Very little variation when it comes to abortion and abortion rights. I mean, those things are pretty universally stated. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard had a little bit of pushback in some ways on abortion, but she was really the only candidate that any, drew any line there. So a lot of similarities, I think, on social issues. You saw, though, a lot of differences, I think, when it came to economics in this debate. Um, I think this was really a, a chance for the moderates or, you know, relative moderates on the stage to draw some hard lines between themselves and the more progressive candidates. And so we saw people like uh, Pete Buttigieg, um, Amy Klobuchar in particular, Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard. We saw them really push back against uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders when it comes to things like Medicare for all or a wealth tax. Uh, and I think you saw some pretty pretty, pretty steep divisions there. Uh, whether it'll be enough to really translate into changes in polling or changes in support in Iowa, New Hampshire, it's too early to tell. But it's a pretty big fracture, and it'll be interesting to watch it moving forward. You know, the name recognition of some of what you are uh, what you are doing simply – Having people hear the names Klobuchar and Buttigieg and Gabbard and Yang, um, because I think often in the media, we only hear uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. I mean, we hear the other ones maybe periodically, but we certainly don't hear them uh, with the level of energy that we hear attention given to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. I I, uh, I want to ask one more question, and it's not related uh, specifically to the debate, but to the statement by um, a member of Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, she, she has come out and endorsed Bernie Sanders, but one of the things that she said really caught my attention. She said, Bernie Sanders, quote, made me recognize my inherent value as a human being. That sounds intensely religious to me. Yeah, I think it's and I think you're right to interpret it that way. Uh, one of the great arguments, I think, for the transformation of politics that we're witnessing right now is that as religion itself begins to move farther and farther away from the public square, you know, to where people who make religious arguments are sort of pushed to the side in some ways, politics begins to take on sort of religious sensibilities for people. You know, they begin to invest meaning into politics that it really shouldn't have. I mean, your political party your platform, your issue preferences, those things shouldn't define you as a human being. You know, those things shouldn't answer life's biggest questions about what is right and what is beautiful and what is just, what is good, all those things. Those are questions outside of politics. But if you have no religious sensibilities, then you begin to invest meaning in places that it really doesn't belong. You know, I don't know enough about um, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez's religious beliefs to know where she's coming from exactly. But this is a tendency that we're seeing quite a bit, and I would like to tell you that it's a problem of the left, but I think we're seeing it on the right as well. Uh, People just losing perspective in some ways when they look at government and what it can and cannot do. And so I think that, you know, you and I want to be very clear that, you know, we do not derive our value nor our worth from from government of any kind, uh, but from God. And we want to be we just want to be sure that we 
we state that very clearly and um, and we affirm it uh, to our listeners today. All right, Mark, Caleb Smith and I are going to be right back. We are going to talk about uh, some of the developments in the impeachment inquiry and pull some of those threads on this 29th day of the official impeachment inquiry into the president of the United States. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark Caleb Smith. All right, let's talk a little impeachment. Uh, lots of developments in this conversation. It seems as if, you know, every single day there are the timeline uh, changes slightly. The characters sometimes develop. Sometimes there are new characters added to the cast. Um, and so... You can really pick up wherever you want because the reality is none of us is is paying TikTok attention to what is happening in Washington, D.C. in terms of the impeachment inquiry. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting developments really was over the weekend, uh, really starting Friday and over the weekend, when uh, President Trump announced through his spokesperson that uh, he was hoping to host the G7 in Florida at his Doral uh, Golf Club in Florida and that created an awful lot of furor on the right that I think caught President Trump by surprise. Um, Republicans really started to push back on the president and say, you know, this is really getting to the point maybe where you are uh, potentially using the office to enrich yourself, which might be a violation of the Constitution, a particular clause in the Constitution. And President Trump eventually pulled back on that. He had a public statement where he said he was gonna, uh, not going to host it there. Um, and then yesterday he had a cabinet meeting where he went on at length about this topic. Uh, the reason I think that it's important, not because now it's going to be a matter of impeachment because the president's not going to do it, but I think that it reveals that the Republicans maybe have a few more cracks in the coalition than people might think. Um, so far, they've been pretty firmly supportive of the president. Even those who've been critical of him have said, well, yeah, maybe what he's done with Ukraine is, uh, is maybe it's bad form. Uh, maybe it's uh, bad politics. Maybe we don't like the president acting this way, but it isn't impeachable. Well, I think now we're starting to see some people question what exactly is or is not impeachable. Uh, Francis Rooney from Florida, a representative, has come out and said he supports the impeachment inquiry. Senator Romney has said he supports the impeachment inquiry. And even Senator Graham from South Carolina has said he's open to the possibility of impeachment. And these, these are things that we would not have heard, I think, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, or four weeks ago. And so I think we're seeing a little bit of evolution. That doesn't mean that it's going to end up with impeachment and removal necessarily. But I think the Republicans are at least having to, t to take a hard look at this. So uh, when, when we look at the people who, whose names we hear and read, these are people in positions of really tremendous influence. Um, talk with us about the stewardship of influence and and when we're particularly when we're thinking about something as weighty uh with some with with a with a gravity like impeachment help us understand the importance of influence uh in yeah. terms of the way we engage in the conversation as well yeah it's a really great question because uh, these representatives, they have many things pulling at them and pulling them in different directions. Uh, you know, they have their own set of beliefs, their conscience. Uh, if they're religiously minded, they probably develop their conscience based on religious principles. 
Uh, but however they think of it, they have a set of beliefs. You know, they don't get involved in politics without having a strong set of principles, no matter what those might be. They also have constituent pressures, you know, where their voters are maybe pulling them in a slightly different direction. Uh, the president's popularity maybe makes it difficult for them to go on the record to say certain things. Um, and, and they're weighing re-election possibilities. They're weighing how history might view them if this thing turns in one direction or another. And so they have a whole set of interests that are self-interested at one in one level. But then they also want to do what's right for the country. You know, I think we have this tendency to view our elected officials in a very cynical way, you know, that they're purely self-interested. They're only looking out for themselves. Yeah, I'm sure that's true for some of them, but many of them really are good public servants who are trying to do what's best for what they think is best for the country. And they have to decide whether they think this whole process is best for the country. You know, I, I have my arguments and my beliefs about impeachment and about a whole host of political issues, but I really want these elected officials to take a good hard look at the evidence to render a verdict, to try to do what they think is in the best interests of the nation, uh, to put aside their own political, partisan, narrow interests at some level, and to do the right thing. And if they can go on the record and do that, then I'll be satisfied about it. Uh, but if this feels like it's partisan, if this feels like that it's just uh, a way to get back at one party or one person or another, uh, then this is going to leave a very bad taste, I think, in the mouths of, in, in the mouths of American voters. Which I think gets us to a conversation about elections. Elections don't just matter. I mean, one of the real, I don't know, gifts to the world of of how the United States of America has moved over its history is that we do have a peaceful transition of power yeah. um, when elections take place and when, you know, when when the will of the people is asserted um, we then don't fight about it. We 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 allow those people who have been elected to lead. Speak to that. Uh, you know, we do. And it's, it is one of the hallmarks of the American form of government. You know, we transition between presidential administrations relatively peacefully. We don't have a history of uh, coups or military uprisings in our in our country. And we tend to think of this as normal. However, when you look at it in, through a historical lens, this is the exception. You know, a lot of times this transition of power gets to be very ugly and very bloody. And, and I think that's been true for our history, that we've done a good job of it. However, if you notice, over the last several elections, we've had significant parts of our country question the legitimacy of the president. You know, we've had, uh, back in 2000, we had Democrats questioning the legitimacy of George W. Bush and his election. President Obama, you had some conservatives and some Republicans questioning his legitimacy as president. And certainly on a different scale, we've had people questioning President Trump's legitimacy in a way that I don't think we have seen historically. And so and I agree with you that we have a pretty good record in this area. Uh, but right now, we're looking at some groups of the, of the electorate that don't seem to be willing to acknowledge that the person that's president is even president, which I think is a new thing in some ways. Yeah, I think it is, too. And I think it's something that uh, you and I will watch together uh, as the 2020 cycle unfolds, but also as this impeachment inquiry continues to unfold. Uh, Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University, thank you so much for joining us today, helping us sort through the headlines of the day, particularly the political ones with a Christian worldview. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Carmen. I appreciate it. You guys can follow him on Twitter at Mark Caleb Smith. We'll be right back. All right. Who is an evangelical or what is an evangelical and what in the world are evangelicals doing? So this this question 
arises for me fairly frequently because I self-identify as an evangelical, but several headlines recently use the word evangelical or evangelical in ways that, you know, I'll just tell you I find mysterious. And so what does it mean in a conversation today when somebody refers to someone as an evangelical or uh, when statisticians refer to white evangelicals, uh, white evangelical voters, or when the Washington Post says, quote, prominent evangelical, or when President Trump's lead advisor is a woman preacher who some strictly complementarian other preachers only celebrate because of her proximity to the president. What kind of evangelical is that? Like, these are questions that you and I should be sorting and sifting through and asking, what does the word mean? What does the word evangelical mean if it's severed from the one whom alone is the evangel, or if it is severed from the great good news of the gospel for all people in all nations for all time? That's the question I'm going to ask next of Thomas Kidd and his book, Who is an Evangelical? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. If you read or listen to the news, you can expect one thing to hit the headlines every day, and that's the stock market report. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. We all want to know, is it up? Is it down? And what's causing these changes? You know, it's amazing how a few simple numbers can impact the financial mood of an entire nation. So how do you measure your financial health? Maybe it's how much cash you have on hand or what you have in savings, or if you have enough in your retirement account. Now, these are all good ways to determine if your finances are in good shape. But here's another way. Take a look at your spending, saving, and giving. Are they aligned with your faith? Are you being obedient to God with your financial decisions? If you can answer yes to both these questions, you'll find you can live a life of contentment, confidence, and generosity. A thought to help you be wise and thrive. Joined this morning by Thomas Kidd. For those of you who follow him on Twitter at Thomas S. Kidd, you already know him. Um, for others, uh, let me introduce you to one of the finest thinkers out there today. He is the James Vardaman Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University. His books include Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father, and American Colonial History, Clashing Cultures and Faith. He's here today to talk about his new book, Who is an Evangelical? Thomas Kidd, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me. So the word evangelical or evangelical, which maybe you could tell us which one, which way we're supposed to be pronouncing it, um, is often just a synonym for, for gospel. I mean, that's the way I think about it. I also recognize that in our culture, that is not how the term is used. So um, why did you write Who is an Evangelical? Um, and who do you feel like the book is for? I wrote it because I think that the word evangelical has become probably the most controversial religious word in American politics today. And because it's gotten so politicized in its meaning, um, it's also become really obscure about what, what the term evangelical uh, means. And I, I think, by the way, that I think Southerners are more likely to say evangelical <laughs> and Northerners, Northerners say evangelical. But uh, that's, that's just a hunch. Uh, and and so anyway, I, I wrote it hoping that journalists and uh, uh, people who work in government and uh, the media and so forth might look at this book as as a kind of short introduction to the history of evangelicalism and um, t 
trying to cut through some of the confusion about what the, what the term means. And, and, you know, I think the way it's used in popular parlance today, people tend to just imply white religious Republicans. Um, but especially when you look at it on the global stage, evangelical means a whole lot more than that. Well, and certainly in particular places in in the world, evangelical is is to distinguish you uh, as a Christian who is operating outside of whatever the state religion is related to Christianity, whatever the state church is. So it's a right. it is a term that is used very differently around the globe. Um, and I think here in the United States, it, it you know it, it, we've had a changing understanding of it over time. We have a tendency in today's culture to turn nouns into verbs, but in this case, we have something that was once understood as an adjective now used as a noun. Talk with us about the, the development of that, uh, you know, the, the way that it's used differently just simply as a, uh, as a piece of speech. Yeah, well, like you suggested, it's a biblical term. It's evangelion in, in Greek, and all that just, that just means good news or, or gospel. Um, but in English, it, it, it goes way back, I mean, it, you know, to the 1500s at least. And it was usually used uh, in the context of the Reformation to just talk about, you know, an evangelical sermon or an evangelical book or an evangelical preacher. It was just, you know, sort of a gospel-oriented uh, reform kind of, you know, uh, message or, or, or something like that. And it really wasn't until the 1800s that you started getting evangelical used as a noun. Um, but I think really when it, when it gets solidified as, as a noun is in the 1940s when the National Association of Evangelicals was was formed, and from that point forward is when uh, you you it really becomes common that people talk about this group of evangelicals, and increasingly that starts to take on political connotations. Okay, and and in terms of the the advent of the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals, and for total disclosure here, I served for a period of time on the board of directors of the NAE. Right. Um, okay. So I obviously identify as an evangelical. Um, uh, but distinguish that from fundamentalism. The very fact that uh, I, as a woman, could have served on the board of directors of the NAE would say a lot uh, about how evangelicalism is understood versus fundamentalism. Right. So this makes it even more complicated that before the founding of the NAE, uh, evangelical and fundamentalists were sort of synonyms. Um, and, and that goes back to the theological wars of the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the early 20th century, where fundamentalists were just the people who were defending the Bible against higher critics. Uh, you know, the liberal theology was being countered by the people who believed in the fundamentals, quote unquote, of Christian theology and the, and the authority of the Bible. And so by the 1940s, there was a sense that fundamentalism had become too rigid and sort of insulated. Um, and, and there was a group of, of Bible-believing Christians uh, who wanted to be more outward-focused and culturally engaged. They, they ultimately became uh, represented, most importantly, by Billy Graham. Um, and that, those people were part of the founding of the NAE um, and were you know, evangelistic and, and outward-focused, culturally engaged, trying to—, to work on intellectual engagement with theology and so forth. And those people tended to call themselves either neo-evangelicals or evangelicals. Um, and, and so a lot of that was a theological, spiritual, uh, apologetics kind of movement. 
But over time, it's definitely starting in the 1950s, it's starting increasingly getting connected to, to political movements, too. So today, and again, I am talking with Dr. Thomas Kidd from Baylor University. We are talking about his new book, Who is an Evangelical or Evangelical, depending on which part of the country you live in. Um, today, people associate the word evangelical as an identification related to race, being white, and political affiliation, not only being Republican, but being a particular uh, variety of Republican. So white Republican is now what most people across the country hear when they hear the word evangelical. As a person who identifies as an evangelical and happens to be white and lives in the South um, in, a red, in a very red state, I am troubled by the way the word has been co-opted to mean something that it does not mean to me. Right. And, and uh, I mean, it's a real problem because uh, apparently, you know, millions and millions of white evangelicals fit that description of pretty much voting for the Republican Party, no matter who the Republicans nominate. And I mean, it's striking to me that for successive um, elections starting in 2008, uh, the, the Republicans have, have nominated people who don't really seem to fit the evangelical uh, model most conspicuously with with Donald Trump, and yet uh, millions and millions of of white evangelicals seem to keep you know going along with the Republican Party. I think I think mostly because of pro life issue and and uh, the Supreme Court. Um, but uh, the, when you think about what evangelical really means, if it is fundamentally a theological and spiritual category then that transcends uh, ethnicity for sure, but it also transcends a national boundary. So, I, you know, I don't see why we wouldn't characterize, you know, a born-again person going to a house church in China as an evangelical. But, of course, that person has nothing to do with the Republican Party and probably knows who Donald Trump is, but is certainly never going to vote for him. And, 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 and yet that person is just as evangelical as somebody identifying as an evangelical to a pollster in America in the 2020 election. Mm. All right. I'm going to continue my conversation with Thomas Kidd in just a moment. We're talking about the new book, uh, Who is an Evangelical? We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing my conversation with Thomas Kidd, the James Vardaman Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Thomas S. Kidd. Kidd has two Ds. The book we're discussing, Who is an Evangelical? Um, all right. You approach this conversation really as a historian. And so uh, I think that, you know, for those who are listening who think that you and I are just having a political discourse that is contemporary, you really trace the arc uh, through history of this term. I think that's important for people to know. But you bring all of that then to bear on the contemporary conversations that we're having here in the United States of America right now. There are some distortions in the public understanding of of this term and this word. Um, do you want to talk about some of that? Sure. Well, part of what I try to trace out is all the, the different ethnic groups in America. And I mean, I, it, it would be a much bigger story if you were looking at it on the global stage. But just in America, um, uh, lots of, of people, uh, people of color, uh, African-Americans, for sure, from the beginning, uh, were part of the evangelical movement. And, uh, you know, the, the evangelicals during the Great Awakening of the 1740s, 
uh, which you know most historians see as kind of the beginning of the evangelical movement in America. Um, it, you know, they they were breaking through into the slave community and the free blacks, um, and uh, making serious inroads for the first time among the African American community, bringing them into the fold of the church. Um, now, a lot of those white evangelical leaders back then uh, had problematic views about race and slavery, um, and and some of the most important evangelical leaders from the beginning were uh, slaveholders themselves. But they believed in the spiritual equality of all people, and so they thought, we, we need to reach out to African Americans. And so by the 1800s, there were thousands and thousands, and over time even millions, of uh, African Americans who were coming into the fold of evangelical churches. But the spiritual equality of the evangelical message uh, was always running into trouble about uh, different views of political and social issues, ethnic issues, uh, certainly dealing with slavery, the Civil War, emancipation. And so right after the Civil War, uh, the, there's the founding of hundreds and, and thousands eventually of independent African-American church, almost all of which are evangelical in style and theology, but they're uh, d deeply separated from uh, the white-led churches because of the, all the problems coming out of the Civil War and racial tension. And so if we've got uh, you know, racial divides within the evangelical community today, uh, those divides have very deep roots in history. Again, talking with Thomas S. Kidd, you can follow him on Twitter at Thomas S. Kidd. The book is Who is an Evangelical? Thomas, maybe we, maybe we go this direction. When you think about history and when you think about the way history is changed— sometimes by recapturing a historic understanding of something in order that people can move forward um, in a positive way you know, after they've, you know, frankly, been kind of derailed. If we were able to recapture the historical understanding of what it means to be an evangelical, are there some opportunities that you see right now in our political conversations where there are maybe natural issues or natural entry points into the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think that you do see uh, some signs of evangelical unity in politics on uh, the immigration issue, mm -hmm. um, and and obviously, you know, white evangelicals are divided on on that issue. But uh, there, there's common cause made, especially between uh, Hispanic evangelicals who are, are you know really care about that that issue for for obvious reasons, and and. I, I think that there's a lot of white evangelicals who understand that even though, uh, you know, I, I think most of us can agree that there has to be some kind of border security, um, but but that, uh, you know, the harsher side of the immigration policy debates is is not fitting for Christians and, and that there are a lot of believers who are part of the people trying to come to America and that we need to be as welcoming to them as we can within the bounds of the law. I mean, I, th I think that there's a, a possibility on an issue like that um, to ha have some common cause across ethnic lines, um, but it it is it is very difficult, and and you, you know I I think it's it's perplexing to see that uh, you know African Americans who they t they tend not to like uh, the term evangelical. African Americans are more much more keen to identify with the term born again. Uh, rather than evangelical, because lots of African Americans hear the political implications within the term evangelical, um, and, and so even though there are these common uh, spiritual values and experiences that I, that I would like to see bring 
evangelicals together across ethnic divides. It's very, very hard in this current political environment. Well, you raise an interesting uh, point there, and that is, are there alternative terms? Do you see any movement among people who have historically described themselves as evangelical of abandoning the term because it is so grossly misunderstood in the culture today? Um, And if so, what are the alternative terms you're hearing? Well, I think that there have been some alternative terms like gospel Christian or, you know, some people just call themselves things like Bible-believing Christians that that doesn't seem to have quite as much political uh, baggage. And I I guess my main recommendation as a practical matter to churches is to just be sensitive both to the confused nature of the term and that even if you as a pastor uh, don't mean anything politically by it, uh, that there may be people in your church that will hear political connotations associated with that term. So we've just got to be sensitive. But I, I don't think that ultimately, as a culture, that we're likely to get away from the term evangelical um, anytime soon, because I think it will continue to be used in polls and in the news. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it's not going to do much good if, if churches try to get away from the term, but it, but the news media is still applying it to those churches. So I, I think a, a better way to do it is to just be judicious about the way that you use the term inside churches, and then to be, try to be aware of, of the uses and abuses of the term in uh, popular discourse. Okay, so I'm going to share an idea with uh, with our listeners. Um, you should buy a copy of this book for yourself, but you should also get a copy for whoever does the religion news coverage at your local paper or your local radio station or any other media outlet. Because that, you know, folks need to understand the term. They need to understand how the term has changed in its use over the course of history. And they need to understand how it is used now by those polling the American public. So that when we quote polls of evangelicals, we actually know what we're talking about. Dr. Thomas Kidd, thank you so much for what you do every day. I obviously follow you on Twitter at Thomas S. Kidd. Um, but thank you for the book, Who is an Evangelical, and for being with us here today on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. conversation that I am encouraging us to have. Some of this is a conversation with ourselves, like with ourselves in the mirror and with ourselves in terms of Christians in the culture today, particularly those of us who whose um, political views might lean more toward smaller government and uh, a strong military and those kinds of and fiscal conservatism those kinds of convictions. And and so I I frame it that way because I do not align being Christian with being uh, of one particular political party or the other. I know Christians who are Democrats, and I know Christians who are Republicans, and I know people who profess to be Christians uh, who certainly don't act that way in terms of their political discourse or engagement. And so when Thomas Kidd points out this major gap between what evangelicalism really entails in terms of being gospel people centered on the gospel and advancing the gospel always and in all ways in in our everyday practice, and what evangelicalism appears to be in media coverage 
he is pointing to uh, a, a, something that is a real felt division. I mean, I feel that division. I do not recognize myself when often when I see the word evangelical used in the mainstream media. Do you? Do you see yourself when uh, when they're describing, frankly, a meanness of spirit and fealty to a particular uh, political party? Do you? Do you nod up and down and say, yeah, that's me, and that's how I think evangelicalism should be defined in this country? Because if the answer to that is no, that is not how uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the evangel, is to be communicated by his people, then you and I have to reclaim the word. In much the same way that I'm sort of an advocate of reclaiming the rainbow as an image, uh, I think that there are words that have been appropriated by the culture in ways that we as Christians need to reclaim. Uh, I mean, certainly God is love, but love is not God. Uh, I think we need to reclaim the goodness of of sex and the way God designed it and the context in which he designed it to be shared exclusively in in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman, Um, forsaking all others. I, I mean, I think that there are some sanctity and holiness issues that Christians can actually get on the forefront of if we are willing to be authentically Christian in our public discourse and in our public engagement as opposed to being politically partisan. Do you see the difference? I'm advocating for an authentically Christian political revolution. That's that. If you want to know sort of like what I am, the itch I'm trying to scratch uh, in terms of cultural engagement, I want to see Christians engage the culture authentically as Christians, not as people who are politically partisan uh, and, and have fealty to any particular political party uh, across the board on any set of issues. Which leads me to the next conversation that we're going to have, which is with Justin Gibney, who is a Christian, on what you might perceive to be as the other side of the aisle. He and I are going to talk about the AND Campaign's 2020 presidential election statement. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.